Today, on episode 3 of Two Drop Tables, we discuss the latest WikiLeaks Fault 7 release, Pandemic, and how this recently leaked CIA tool spreads infected files across an organization's network. Cloud-based single sign-on service OneLogin suffered a breach where users' passwords and decryption keys were stolen. We discuss how businesses can improve the vetting of their cloud partners and whether it is a good idea to put all of your eggs into a cloud authentication basket. Lastly, each of our hosts provide their top three things that a home computer user can do to better secure their environment and their private information. You are listening to Two Drop Tables in a Microphone, an information security podcast with a Canadian perspective and the only tech podcast with a three-drink minimum. We are the place for information security news and how it affects you as either a security professional or a general consumer. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and our guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views and opinions of their employers, past or present. Welcome to episode 003 of the Drop Tables podcast. My name is Mark Speed, lead consultant at Dogwood Technical Solutions, and today I'm drinking Lagavulin 16 year. With me tonight, as always, is John. All right, John Roberto here. And Dom. Hey, Dom here, and I'm drinking Miller Genuine Draft. Excellent. So first topic today is uh, Pandemic, which is one of the latest uh, Vault 7 releases. Pandemic is a project um, that the CIA was running, which was recently leaked, uh, leaked by WikiLeaks. And essentially what it does is turns an organization's uh, Windows file server into a patient zero that spreads infected files to other users that access that shared file server on the network. Um, I guess one of the most interesting things about Pandemic uh, when I was reading up about it is that it doesn't actively uh, replace the file on the disk with one that has a Trojan built into it because then it would find it by virus scanners and whatever. It actually sits and waits for a file to be requested. And then on the fly, inserts the Trojan into the file before it sends it to the end user. That's what I find the most amazing about this. Because obviously, if it's on disk and they change something, then it would be easily picked up. But how it, uh, how it just does it in transit is, uh, is quite unique here. Yeah, it's, 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 it's different. Different than other... Um... Another uh, malware uh, that I've seen as of late, especially. But though it could, uh, I'm thinking though that it has some similarities with the Eternal Blue. So when I was reading an article this morning, because uh, I started researching this right when it came out, and now a lot more people have looked into it. And one of the things that it does to be able to like intercept that network traffic is installs a uh, mini filter device driver. And I didn't really realize the first time I read that, but then after reading an article this morning, there was uh, another security professional stating that, you know, this has to be signed to get past the Windows device driver certification. So either CIA has a certificate and they can sign that driver and install it without the user not having to do anything, or they have some way to bypass the driver signing. Or they could have used uh, stolen certificates, uh, uh, I remember back a few years ago that uh, what was that a tr- a root, root CA was uh, hacked and uh, had their uh, private keys stolen, so they could probably potentially be using those. Yeah, I mean that's the problem with these XO five nine five one nine certificates now yeah. is it's really you know we have CRLs and stuff, but it's really it's hard to fully trust them, right? They want you to trust them, but 
um, it's it's not a hundred percent, and there's always new, you know, mitigations coming out. But you don't know. I mean, Microsoft and the CIA working together. Does it sound so crazy? I don't think so. I don't think so either. And I mean, it's it's happened before. Like a look at AT and T. They've worked uh, with the NSA in the past, and uh, believe there was a lawsuit in regards to that. And uh, the uh, so. And the CIA, I mean, they probably work with uh, with companies on a regular basis. It's uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me one bit. What would you do if you had a startup and someone from CSIS, or since we're a Canadian podcast from a Canadian perspective, came to you and said, yeah, we want access to your data through a backdoor API you don't tell anyone about? So, you know, I think initially everyone says no, and then there's an envelope on your desk with some incriminating evidence and you say yes or something to that or or it could be or it could be uh, let's say this you know the communication security establishment comes to your door and says uh, we want access to your customer files or we want to be able to uh, insert uh, input the insert this malware into your uh, into your software um, and uh, in exchange, we'll give you like better business deals, or uh, you know, lead you lead you uh, onto uh, 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 like better better more customers, and thus increasing your profits. And so there is there is the fear aspect about leaving the envelope with incriminating evidence, but they might also uh, present you with an incentive to increase your profits, say by like four hundred percent. Yeah, I mean that's probably the more more likely. I mean. Other stuff is very movie-like, but you know, I'm sure everyone has good intentions, and then there's probably some incentives that are probably just too hard to turn away. Yeah, exactly. But the other thing too is uh, they think, oh yeah, we have good intentions. Uh, um, like what we're doing is we're keeping the country secure by uh, keeping these vulnerabilities a secret, or uh, creating this software so that we can um, we can target our like the Russians or the North Koreans, for example. Um, and But as we saw with Eternal Blue and the WannaCry ransomware, I mean, uh, bad, good intentions have disastrous results or potentially can have disastrous results. For sure. Like And like we were discussing earlier before the podcast, like there hasn't been a lot of code with the Vault 7 releases. Um, I think Marble had source code. Um, these ones are just documents describing, you know, how to use these tools. I don't know if the code or the actual executables or whatever it is, I don't know if WikiLeaks has them and they just don't want to distribute them or if they don't have them. And this is always that was leaked. It was just mostly documents, but pretty scary that these things are out there. Yeah, exactly. And I think in this case, it could have been um, the, uh, the, uh, the documents were in one location and the code was in another location. And uh, the, uh, the person who leaked uh, the, uh, the documents, uh, had access obviously to the documentation but not to the actual source code or at least not uh, not all of the source code as demonstrated with marble i mean uh, there's there there's a source code for marble but uh, uh, i didn't see anything in any of the other uh, pieces of malware that uh, that was leaked so the documentation for was leaked so i mean it's not uh, i think that's what it was it was a separation there yeah then also might be the case where like marble isn't that terribly dangerous, right? It's a network network or a um, incident sort of forensics, you know, uh, obfuscation tool, right? Um, exactly. We talked about that last last podcast. So just you know, basically select. I want this, you know, Trojan that I made to look like it came from Russia, and it just puts in a bunch of Russian. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty basic. It's not a lot of damage if you release the code, the source code to that tool, whereas some of these other ones would be. Like this one in particular, I, I find interesting too because it targeting a file server. That's targeting businesses for the most part. Like most individuals don't have a file server. Most, you know, groups of hackers or you know criminals or whatever. Like, do they have a file server? I I don't know many that do. Like, who's rust? Who's running? this stuff that well the CIA it could is also be it could also be for purposes of industrial espionage and here's the other incentive you know i mean the chinese are doing it right so secretly they probably the us is doing it maybe the russians are doing it i mean probably a lot of other countries are doing it um and, and so it's it wouldn't surprise me that uh, that that this was probably the uh, one of the main purposes of this application Oh, definitely. I mean, every country is doing it. There's no question. Oh, absolutely. And that's exactly what it's for. I mean, file servers, like Mark said, businesses, you know, trade secrets, government secrets, whatever. I know government has a lot of file servers. I mean, they're trying to get all the information they can. And, you know, reading up on this, it's um, it's really hard to detect. You know, it's because Pandemic knows when a local user is accessing one of the files and just gives it the clean version. Right. And it's not the malware laced one. And, you know, you have to start comparing all these SMB shares to try and figure out what's going on. And that's the other thing, too. I mean, some of this the software, like, is there there's probably no signatures for them. And that and but or uh, does, let's say, heuristic analysis uh, uh, pick a, pick any up unusual activities or does it, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's it, it's not something that. Um, that is uh, out there's probably why the code was separated from the documents because uh, they don't want uh, they don't want the, any signatures or any um, any particular patterns uh, to be discovered by uh, uh, anti like antivirus companies or anything like that because it's it's uh, they want to keep they want to keep using it for as long as possible so yeah, speaking of for as long as possible, if you look at the date on the version 1.1, which is the latest one leaked uh, document for Pandemic, it's January 2015. Yeah. Just think and what they might have available to them now. Oh, absolutely. They probably have updated this uh, software already, and uh, they probably have added some new features. Uh, they added new uh, that we haven't heard of yet. Like there's probably vulner- there's probably exploits for vulnerabilities that haven't been out uh, made public yet. Yeah, this current version can only infect up to like watch up to eighty files to to infect. Maybe the new one can do hundreds. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a different tool completely. I mean, this is just one of who knows how many and how long these leaks go on for. Exactly. I mean, I mean, what what was that? There was another one called Flame uh, that I think was uh, done by Equation Group, and it was out there since two thousand eight, and I think it was discovered. I think it was 2013, 2014. So it was out there for almost, let's see, it's almost, almost five years, over five years actually. So it's, uh, it was already old malware, um, and um, and they just, uh, they just recently, I think, well, that was the time of 2014, that they just, they just discovered it. So, and it's uh, a lot of these companies. Uh, I remember it was Kaspersky's that uh, Kaspersky that uh, just discovered uh, Flame, and then there was uh, Dooku as well. But that was you know a few years back. So I mean it was like 
I think right now it's the uh, the timing of the uh, let's say pandemic or whatever coming out now is going to be a lot shorter because uh, people now like there are companies out there now looking for these. So, you know, but like unlike before where they weren't, and so it's gonna you're gonna see a lot more of these uh, leaks come out in the near future. Speaking of leaks, uh, the popular single sign-on service one login was breached. Um, couple weeks ago or less than two weeks ago and that's database containing all of its information including uh, user info the applications they were logging into various types of keys why they were stored in database tables i don't know but all of those were extracted and stolen by hackers and decrypted during the seven hours that they were in one logins systems seven hours that's not even very long yeah but the thing is seven hours is enough time to uh, get extract everything yeah, they have to they have to be very fast and know exactly what they're trying to do. <laughs> oh, exactly, and then they would have to know uh, what uh, what they were looking for. What uh, if they're breaking in? They already had to have a plan. Say, okay, this is what we need to take, and then everything else is secondary. So, like they say, okay, we need to get the keys first. So they break in, they grab the keys, and they go, oh, we can take all customer data and, and uh, all their password data, and then take that out. Uh, but that is secondary to getting the keys. But and um, you know, but it might take a while. I think uh, they're going to have to go out there to their customers saying you need to change all your passwords because chances are they've taken all their passwords as well. Yeah, so, they were notifying customers and telling them to change passwords to all the services that they're using one login uh, as a single sign-on for. Generating, yeah, they were saying generate new certificates for your apps that use SAML SSO, new API credentials and OAuth tokens, like a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, and Gen- uh, <laughs> like, I mean. Oh, that is that is such an inconvenience for companies. Like if they're if they're like larger enterprises using this, uh, it, it could take days or maybe even weeks for them to uh, to fix this, to change all their keys, to to change their certificates and passwords. Well, it's uh, the register showing like uh, eleven things. <laughs> Force a directory password reset. Generate new search. Generate new API. Generate apply new directory tokens for Active Directory. Update the API OAuth credentials. Generate new desktop SSO tokens. You know, replace your Radius shared secrets. Oh, jeez. Like, how do you do that through a big organization? That yeah, is a that, major breach. That is a major breach. It's uh, it, it, it's insane. I could, I was like, okay, well, we have to we have to change all this stuff. We have to change all this all our certificates and all our the keys on a Radius server for let's say you know thousands of devices. Yeah, good luck with that. That's that's going to take an insurmountable <laughs> long time. So it sort of brings like a good up a good point, right? Um, should businesses be leveraging like one service to single sign on everything that the business does? And like what are business doing to vet the cloud providers that they have? You know, did anyone have one login as part of their agreement with them? Look at, hey, we want to see some security threat and risk assessments that you've mm-hmm. done. We want to see results from penetration tests or whatever. Or did you use a CASB, a cloud access security broker? It's like a third party that, uh, like if you're using a cloud service and then a third party helps to protect uh, the cloud service. So, and it also helps to um, ensure trust uh, on the, for the customers when they're using, uh, using the cloud service. But, CASB is a uh, there's 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 some companies out there now, but uh, it's it's um, I think it's a relatively new thing. It's it's uh, in its infancy. So 
And I think these services, these CASB services, are going to be pretty expensive. So they might not be, they might not uh, be useful from, say, a small to medium business uh, perspective. You got to do something. If you're going to trust a third party, you need to vet them. You need to, like Mark said, STRA. You got to take a look at something. You can't exactly. just assume like, oh, they have all these seals, they have the certification and whatever, and then you see something like this, a so one log on breach, and you're like, oh, we basically have to tear down our enterprise and build it back up. On the oh, I know, front. I know, and and that's not going to happen. I mean, I mean, you're talking about a, let's say the uh, the BC government or a company like IBM uses uh, uses one you know one login, and, and all of a sudden, oh yeah, we have to base, basically tear down our network. Good luck with that. That's not going to happen. Like there's, that's just this just doesn't make any sense for 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 an enterprise that large, but um, yeah, I mean uh, that's that's the thing, right? Do they do security threat and risk assessments? How many companies know about security threat and risk assessments? You know, are, are they using? Uh, is there? I don't think there's even a standard uh, process for uh, conducting a security threat and risk assessment. I mean, and from a BC government perspective, we use we do security threat and risk assessments, but not. Uh, I don't know of any private industries doing doing straws, uh, STRA, um, on on their uh, for their for the stuff they use. And is it enforced, right? Like in exactly. the BC government, I can't put something in production that has any private information in it without doing that. Yeah. And then exactly. and someone's gonna audit it and ask me questions like, "Oh, you gave yourself a good rating on such and such control. Why? What are you doing?" And that's the thing, right? It's like some of these, some of these, a lot of these uh, companies, uh, like they don't, they don't know what controls they have because, I mean, for us, we we ha- we go through audits. Like our, so a lot of our systems for the BC government go through audits, um, and but not. Uh, I don't know about private companies. Do they audit their own systems? Like uh, for example, is there like a like a internal audit branch uh, within IBM or um, or Intel or say Google, Facebook or whatever? that audits their systems. Like, do, do There's got to be a cost-benefit analysis at some point. Oh, yeah. You can't exactly. see these massive companies not doing some of that, but at the same time... Yeah, they do have risk management. You know, right? They have something, but um, you know, what's it going to cost and how much, how much do they want to go... You know, how much do they want to spend to go down that rabbit hole? Um, and is it even available to ask people these questions, right? Like, so our business is just going to something like OneLogin or something like that, some cloud provider that provides something... Uh, that needs to be secured, and then they're going and signing up online, filling on the online form, agreeing to a terms of use, and we will never sue you, even if we're terrible. Like there's, I haven't seen a way to go. Oh no, I want to stop here and phone someone in their security department and mm-hmm. ask them if they've ever done a penetration test. Yeah, exactly. And then, but the thing is, is that even if you do, it's like first of all, you don't, uh, you don't know who, and if you find out who, if they if they have a CISO, like a chief information security officer. Like, are they going to tell you anything, right? Uh, you know, they're going to just, they're just going to come up with a company spiel or whatever. And then you're going to go, okay, well, um, that doesn't give me enough detail. We have service agreements with some of the providers we deal with, and we make them not only do stuff like this, but to follow the process we have, even if they have another one. And I don't, I don't know, you have to be a large organization and have a lot of weight and money behind you to do stuff like that. And people have to want to work with you regardless. I don't yeah, know who else exactly. is doing stuff like that. Yeah, that's the question, right? I mean, 
for us, we, we all three of us, we work, you know, we we do something with the provincial government, but it's it's not. Uh, but what about private businesses? How do they how do they handle? It? Like they have a they have a risk and compliance officer, probably dealing with like organizations like the SEC or uh, in like uh, I think it was called um, FinTrack in Canada or. Um, there's or, or OSFI, I think it was uh, Office of uh, Securities and Financial. Uh, I can't remember the. Uh, but uh, the thing is, is that we have our own version of the SEC when it comes down to it, and it's you know that's what they're concerned about, right? Like they're concerned about risk uh, from a financial perspective, but they don't see. I think they don't see go beyond the security, like to the cybersecurity side, because it's like, well, that's. Something one we don't understand, and two, it's not really my job. Like from, from according to the risk manager, and then they go, okay. Well, then all of a sudden we have this huge breach, and it costs uh, you know fifty million dollars uh, to deal with, and now we've lost trust of our customers. So now our risks of uh, risks to our revenue stream, to our bottom line, has gone way up. And then they'll say, and then they're probably scratching, you know, probably slapping themselves on the side of the head, going, maybe I should have thought of this. Uh, uh, thought of this uh, security, right? Like thought of cybersecurity. I say, unfortunately, people always think of it when it's too late. Now that there's a breach, now we have to start thinking about it. Exactly, it's 2020 hindsight, right? I think just before we scare everyone about, you know, oh, maybe I shouldn't use any cloud-based thing that has anything to do with passwords. Um, I just want to just note that it's important to know the difference between what login was doing and what other cloud-based password managers like LastPass are doing, for example. Right. Because one login is a single sign-on service, you actually log into one login and you tell it, here's my login for, you know, uh, Atlassian and for this and for that and for AWS and whatever else one login uh, lets you log into. So it has all your passwords, but it needs to be able to decrypt them, to send them on to the to the end cloud service. So you will need to remember your one password for one login and say, I want to log in here. And it does the login for you, basically. So that's definitely different than how something like LastPass works where all of your passwords are encrypted. They can't decrypt them. And when you Sorry. need one, your device, whether it's your phone or your desktop uh, or your browser, is decrypting them locally using your password. That's right. So it's they're a little different here for sure. And I think it all depends on uh, what what you intend to do. Like if you're if you say you have uh, 50 passwords, like 50 different passwords for 50 different services, yeah, I probably might need something a little bit bigger than KeePass. But if you're just using say three to five services, you know, you have a bank, you have a you, you do online banking, you have uh, your email, you have whatever like Spotify or your your Facebook password, or Google password, whatever, right? Um, you know, KeePass probably would work for that. And you get, keep your passwords on your local device, or your local uh, device, like uh, your laptop or your phone. If you can do it uh, without the interme intermediary knowing, I mean, uh, your password or being able to get to the hashes of your password, then uh, then a breach may not have that much of an effect uh, on your password if if the uh, if if they aren't able to get to your hashes. But who knows, right? Like, can they employ data masking? They employ some other uh, feature, but I mean, that's something that uh, needs to be thought of. Two-factor authentication, for example. Uh, like exactly. if you're using one login but using 2FA, then yeah, you'd still want to do that huge list of 10, 11 things that they posted that they suggested everyone do. 
because of this breach, but at least you'd be secure in knowing while well, while we're doing that, no one can actually log in without using 2FA. Yeah, exactly. All right, but, th but the thing is, I mean, 2FA, um, 2FA is one good way uh, to do it, but uh, I think for a service like one login, it's, uh, I mean, I think it'd be limited. It's like you can't use your, you can't use biometrics or anything. Or if they had it, they could, they could probably have a service that can employ biometrics. It's okay, we'll send you a, a device that allows you to put your thumbprint or, but I think the best way is a claims-based claims authentication, so. I was at a pizza place where the person, the cashier had, they had a USB based um, fingerprint biometric scanner to unlock the bill and use the computer. That's interesting. There. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't seen that before. I was like, huh. Which pizza place was it? I'm not going to say on the podcast. <laughs> I'll cut it out. Oh, okay. I'll have to cut that out now. Thanks for making more work for myself. <laughs> no, it's interesting though. You you go to like one login's website and their homepage and it's like, you know, we do this, we're secure, we're an industry leader, all this kind of stuff, right? So everyone feels secure and you know, I got some cool graphics and they talk about it, and then the next thing you know, you see a breach here and you're like, What are you guys doing? How do we trust these guys? What do we yeah. gotta do? That's what it comes down to. It's like if you're using this at an enterprise level, like you need to know what, what, what they, what have they done on the inside? You know, I mean, they can tell you all the marketing spiel that you want, but it's, you know, I mean, I've seen, I've seen vendor presentations all the time. I've met with vendors, and all they're telling me is, uh, our product can do this, our product can do that, our product, and you know, you know, insert one, two, three, four points, uh, and but it's okay, great, but have you actually done any assessments on it? Have you actually tested it? Have you actually tried to break into it yourself? Like, uh, I tried to find out all the, all the little vulnerabilities that could be present in there, which 99% of chances there will be something in there. Uh, so have you ever thought of that? And, you know, I mean, it's, they probably haven't, and uh, it's not, not their job. I mean, these people are not really techies that try to sell you this, uh, sell you this equipment or software. They, they, uh, they're marketers, right? They're there to sell you a product. So, you know, you can ask them all these detailed questions. They go, okay, well, we'll have to talk to our engineer and managed to catch part of a webcast, uh, that Dom was participating in last week. And part of the discussion when I tuned in, uh, was around what can people do to help determine if they have vulnerable IOT devices on their network. And it got me thinking about, you know, what advice can we give to people, just regular users and people to help them secure like their devices and, and networks at home. Bearing in mind that the most common attacks on end user consumer devices are phishing, uh, malvertising, unpatched vulnerabilities, uh, physically stealing devices. Um, what do we suggest that end users do? So I guess we'll start with John. What's your top three things that you think a person should do? Uh, well, I think in our uh, connected world, uh, we and uh, all these social networking, we like to share a lot. And I think my number one is probably don't overshare on social networking sites. Uh, you know, the, so much information can be gleaned from people on these sites, and it's easier to put together a profile, figure out uh, places you like to visit, you know, any kind of personal information to put together, uh, you know, a profile on you to even steal your identity. So just being aware of what you're sharing 
on social networking sites. You know, you start doing this on two, three, four, five sites, and you know, all of a sudden I get everything I know about you. Uh, second, use a password manager. I know we just went in depth on one login, and I know that's more SSO, and we did talk about password managers, and there have been breaches in the past, but you know, I use something like LastPass. I find it's really good. It's, it's secure. Uh, as long as you have a strong master password, uh, a second factor to log in, you know, a unique password that I don't even know for each service that I log into, just generated in the app. Uh, it's probably better because right now I think most people just reuse the same one over and over again. Uh, and a third one is huge now that, you know, there's Wi-Fi coverage basically in every city. Uh, you know, for free, Shaw's putting it up here, Telus does it, you know, you go. I was just in New York and there is, you know, the MTA, that the subway, there's free Wi-Fi everywhere. But it's very important that you only connect to trusted Wi-Fi networks. Uh, it's very easy to set up something like a Wi-Fi pineapple, copy an SSID, and you have people unsuspecting it connecting to uh, a nefarious endpoint. So, and stealing your data, seeing everything, especially if you're if you're just sending that in plain text. So those would be my three. Don't overshare password manager and connect to trusted Wi-Fi. I like the overshare one. I think that's something that we sort of grew up with and have like realized as the internet became more and more useful and all these social media things started arising up around us. But it's something that we need to like pass down to everyone else and including our kids and our younger, the younger generations, because they don't really get it. These younger kids, like they do stuff with their whole name on YouTube and whatever. It's like, the next time we have a prime minister, we're probably going to know everything that that person did, unless you know someone from some high agency comes and wipes everything. But like people share everything about themselves. Yeah, they trust. They trust too much, is what it is. You're trusting that. Well, I'm just sharing it to my friends, and it's like, well, no. Now it's friends of friends and friends of friends of friends. And the other thing too is, I found uh, uh, where cases where uh, they uh, some people just they they have a they got into a big accident, a car accident, and uh, they, they have an open claim with ICBC or an insurance provider, uh, and uh, they uh, all of a sudden, you know, they're they're climbing up mountains and showing off on Facebook, and uh, the uh, insurance companies they go out and look for this, uh, and they see, oh, this person uh, has a claim with us. Uh, she says she's injured, but looks like uh, she's having a real good time. She scaled this mountain, and. Uh, <laughs> So we're going to deny her her claim and uh, probably even open up a fraud investigation. So, I mean, it's, yeah, don't overshare. All right, Dom, what's your uh, top three things that you think uh, people should do to help secure themselves? Uh, my The number one is uh, disable universal plug and play uh, and other un- unneeded services. Uh, what you're doing, if you have on all, a bunch of, uh, say, your applications are open to the Internet, if you're not using them, uh, just shut them off. Uh, uh, and don't uh, don't open them up until you need to use them again. It's uh, especially with the universal plug and play. It's uh, it leaves your system open. I mean, uh, I had a I have a firewall system on my network, uh, uh, and I had put a camera on it, and all of a sudden I did an Nmap scan of my IP address, and voila, there's uh, my camera is all exposed to the internet, and all of a sudden my firewalls become useless. So I mean, um, if if uh, if it's a really good idea to disable uh, your universal plug-and-play and other unneeded services, uh, it reduces what we call an attack surface. 
But would you disable that on your router? That's right. Disable that on your router. You disable it on your. Uh, you could just you disable it uh, potentially on the actual device as well. So, uh, number two, uh, install a uh, malware scanner. For example, if you're using uh, if you using a vast antivirus, install obviously install an antivirus. Uh, so if you use install antivirus, antivirus will not pick up all malware. So you can have some malware in there that the antivirus has no idea uh, if it's there or not. So uh, it leaves you unprotected. So my, my suggestion is to uh, install a, uh, a secondary malware scanner such as malware bytes and so that, uh, you, so that uh, you have a better shot of uh, picking up any malware that uh, could have come through, uh, uh, that could have been installed onto your system. And uh, also, third one, really important, keep your systems patched and up to date. Uh, there are vulnerabilities out there that are coming online every single day and uh, for, your various, for various systems. So if you, have, uh, if you keep your systems patched on a regular basis, uh, you are reducing your uh, risk uh, of any breaches. So those are my top three. Um, disable UPnP and other unneeded services on your router and on your internet connected devices. Uh, secondary antivirus malware scanner, uh, such as uh, malware bytes, uh, install that. And then keeping your system up to date, uh, patched and up to date. Yeah, that, uh, that third one's really important. I mean, as you can see with the recent leaks and stuff, Microsoft have any release patches for Windows XP. You know, I know people always uh, rag on, you know, forced updates and this and that, but for the most part, it's it's to catch these types of vulnerabilities. And if everyone had things up to date, they wouldn't need to issue that that update. So I think that's probably a, a, a big one for most people. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, um, from an enterprise level, it's, you could have all the, have all the security, you know, firewalls, uh, VPNs, you know, IP, IDS, IPS uh, systems in place, but if your systems aren't patched, I mean, uh, you it, uh, it's just a matter of time before your system, before your network gets breached or there's a virus like traveling through it. And sometimes people think, well, I don't need a patch because I have a router. And that's not, that's, <laughs> not how, that's not how it works. That does not how it yeah. works. That's not how it works, absolutely. Those people are not welcome to plug their laptop in anywhere near me. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So for my uh, three ideas, the first one I came up with, um, which sort of stemmed from the conversation and the webcast that I tuned into when I saw Dom talking, was to uh, people can scan the open ports that they may have on their network that are going through their router because uh, UPnP or something is enabled, for example, or if anyone's opened some ports that they don't need. Um, using some pretty easy tools, like you don't need to have a hacker friend come over with his Linux laptop and tell you, if you're you know secure or not, you can go to, for example, just go Google Shields Up uh, or just go to uh, grc.com. And Shields Up is just a web-based port scanner. It hits most of the you know more common ports. And it'll tell you if there's something open there. If you have a, a web server or you know a camera or you have something like SSH enabled, which you really don't want. So it'll highlight some things for you. And then if you don't understand from reading uh, what Shields Up is telling you about that port and why you may want to close it, then you have something at least to bring to, you know, your IT guy at work or something and say, hey, this website said I had this open and it was bad. And then they can help you point you in the right direction. Uh, the second one would be to block ads in your browser. 
Um, not only are ads intrusive and annoying, I know that's sort of, you know, how the internet makes its money. Um, but unfortunately it's a huge vector for viruses. Um, so that sort of the buzzword, uh, industry word for it would be malvertising. These advertisers are, um, displaying ads for third parties who have managed to find a way to uh, infect your computer through your browser and they've implanted that into an ad. So not only will you not have flashy ads everywhere when you're looking at your porn, you won't have to worry about getting infected by viruses at the same time. And it's literally, you can view a web page that loads an ad. You don't see anything, nothing untoward happens and you're infected with something. Um, it, you that can happen. I know a lot of people think that you need to install something. You need to click something, you need to do something bad, download something and install it. That's not the case and hasn't been for a very long time. So blocking ads in your browser. And then, you know, if there's a website or certain podcasts that you like, maybe you can donate to them directly rather than loading their ads to get the money. Uh, the third one would be, uh, don't open email attachments from anybody. Um, I don't, uh, it sounds funny, but I don't open an email attachment from anyone unless I know I'm getting it. So if John says, Hey, I'm sending you a picture from that party last night, then I know I'm getting it. And if I look at it and then I'm like, okay, that looks like it's going to be a picture. And then I open it. Normally I would say don't open attachments from people you don't know, but I've seen a lot of phishing attempts that come, for example, to the organization where I work with other people's legitimate email addresses. So it's really, really difficult for people to determine, do I know this person or not? So if you're not expecting to get an attachment, don't open it. You know, you can contact the person, ask, hey, did you, you know, just send me a Word document and find out that way. That's probably the best protection, right? We, yeah. we just had that one not too long ago and it's like, oh, this is from someone in my organization and it sounds legit. But, you know, like Mark said, if you're not expecting it, don't open it. And if you're not sure, get in touch with them. Especially from an organizational standpoint, but uh, if you if you're say if you're a normal home user, and if you see uh, if you see an email that you don't recognize with an attachment, definitely do not open it. Do not even open the email; just delete it. I mean, it's uh, I've been hearing uh, I've been, I've saw I've seen an email now where you can open it, and uh, you know they have they have images in it, but you go okay if I click a. If you click anywhere inside that email, you will you will get uh, you'll get hacked. You know, I mean, uh, end up having malware on your system. Uh, and uh, they're you know, their fishers are creative here. They're coming up with uh, different uh, different uh, techniques to get around uh, uh, antivirus or you know even awareness. And uh, I now they're even coming up with oh, if you just hover over the link, boom, the uh, malware activates. So. Yeah, if you don't see, if you see an email that you don't recognize, delete it. Just delete it. Don't even open it. For sure. So I'll uh, have all these written down and put it on the show notes. There'll be a link in the podcast description so everyone can go there and get that full list. You don't have to rattle them off again. And just before we wrap up, I wanted to mention one quick bit of news, sort of have a short discussion on it. <clears throat> and that uh, is, I've been getting, and I know a lot of people have been too, um, a phishing SMS text message from different carriers on my mobile device saying that I have overpaid my bill. And I need to click this link to get money back. Oh, 
I've seen that too. Yeah. I, I think it's a huge widespread. It's come to my personal device and my work device from every carrier, even American carriers that we can't get here. And from carriers that aren't my carrier, like there's, you know, I don't use that carrier. I, I wouldn't have paid them a bill. I'm just wondering how many people are getting them and how many people might be falling for it. Like I'm not even clicking that link. I think I might install a VM and just click it and see what happens. I don't know if it's something that can affect mobile or not. It must be if they're sending it there. I don't know what it is. Maybe they just want you to log in and put information in the web form and that's what they're doing. Maybe it's worth looking at and maybe I can give an update next podcast. So I just was sort of wanted to mention that that seems to be really prevalent right now. And obviously, if you did overpay your bill, they're not going to send you a text message. No. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense at all. No, they'll credit your next bill or something, send you an email about it or something, or even call you directly. But that's those are the types of attacks now. Social engineering, I mean, it's it's getting harder and harder to you know brute force your way in or, or whatever. It's the easiest the biggest vulnerability is people or our people. So let's, they keep going with them and they're getting craftier and craftier with this now and text messaging. And that's the other thing too. I mean, if, uh, if you want to look at it, Mark, uh, you know, I'd, I'd suggest a uh, burner phone, like a phone with no uh, other data on it and uh, see, uh, open it up, open up the link and see what happens, see what comes up. Yeah. I might uh, install a, uh, just an Android machine virtual machine on my desktop and try it there too yeah absolutely though i do not if uh, if you don't know what you're doing uh for the audience out there if you don't know it don't uh, just if you see an uh, sms message like that just delete it um if on the if you really but if you do know what you're doing you know feel free um to uh experiment but uh but you know disclaimer it's uh we, we will not be held responsible for any uh anything that you do so you break your phone and lose your credit card info. That's not our fault. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that was the Two Drop Tables podcast for this week. If you've got comments or feedback, you can visit our website at twodroptables.ca. That's the number two, droptables.ca. There you can read the show notes and leave a comment on this episode. Or you can email feedback at twodroptables.ca. You can subscribe to us via iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or anywhere else you find fine podcasts. Just go to our website for convenient links or search your podcasting app for two drop tables. 